0: church. Grab those Bibles and let's go to Romans chapter 3. We get started. I do recognize it is a little bit, depending on where you're sitting today, it's a little bit warm and stuffy. Uh, airs not seeming to be cooperating too greatly with us. We will get it fixed. Uh, that being said, uh, it's a little bit warm up here. Uh, <laughs> so, Sean, do me a favor, like, cut those lights off. I promise I won't fall asleep in the message. There we go. Now I've got to find the airflow. <laughs> Hang on, really? You gotta bear with me. I gotta. There's a spot up here that the air's. Yeah, this will do. it. Right here. All right, cool. That's why we have something like this. All right, I don't want to be an angry pastor preaching today. I want to do old school, get a hanky out, wipe off the sweaty bald head and all that. Maybe we could sell that for our digital son. No, no, I'm sorry. That's No, bad joke, pastor, bad joke. Romans chapter 3, we are going to be uh, finishing out the section from verses 9 through 20. Here we see that every single aspect of the world, not just of humanity, but every single aspect of the world and humanity has been infected and affected by sin. Paul goes to great detail in the first three chapters of this letter to make it known that we are all guilty before God. Because we're all guilty before God, we are in desperate need of divine intervention in our lives. As we read through this section, let's just go back to verse number 9. And let me just quickly, really, I I do mean it quickly point out the various aspects of our lives that has been infected and affected by sin. Right? Just one word summary. It's like, look at verse number 9. There we see how our nature, nature. It says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. So we have our natures affected. Verse number 11, our mind has been affected. It says, there is none who understand. So nature, our mind, and see our motives. The second part says, there is none who seeks for God. Verse 12, we see how our will has been infected. It says, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless we see our deeds next it says there is none who does good there's not even one all of these things we discussed last time in part one of this section where we looked at the character of the natural man Today, we're, we're going from the character of the natural man to the conduct of the natural man. So picking up in verse number 13, uh, we see how our words are affected. It says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. We go from our words to our emotions in verse number 15 and 16 says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Verse 17 talks about our soul. It says there, in the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to god because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for though the for through the law comes the knowledge of sin so so paul started off in chapter 3 he started off talking about the character of the natural man now he's going to be discussing the conduct of the natural man and he starts by an emphasis on the human speech. He paints a rather disgusting picture that proceeds from, from, the, from the throat to the tongue to the lips and to the mouth. And so notice what he charges, the charges that he gives. I feel like a, a traveling pulpit today. Yeah, that's better. Okay. Sorry. Verse 13 Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So much in those two verses. Remember, he's quoting from a lot of different Old Testament texts here. In fact, let me show you. uh, Verse number 13, the first part of verse number 13 comes from Psalm chapter 5, verse number 9. There it says, uh, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now the second part of verse number 13 is a reference from Psalm 140, verse number 3. There it says, they sharpen their tongue as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. Then we get to verse number 14. Verse 14 is a quote from Psalm chapter 10, verse number 7. There the psalmist writes, His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. In in addressing the conduct of the natural man, Paul starts by, first of all, talking about the things that we say. Uh, Logically, I think it's a great place to start. The connection between our words and our character is strong. They're directly linked together. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus tells us how our words truly reveal our character. Matthew 12 verse number 34 says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In other words, your mouth reveals your true nature. It reveals the reality of what's inside of you. Your mouth will make that known. So, in rapid fire order, Paul charges that the the mouth of a natural man is foul and corrupt. It says their throat is an open grave. an open grave is a symbol of corruption it, it, it 's a symbol of, of, of just disgust it, it, it's it 's awful it's it 's foul it 's offensive it's it, it, it 's corruptive. It's the, same, it's the same way of saying a spiritually dead heart can only generate spiritually dead words. And so our mouths are foul and corrupt. It's deceiving is next. Notice how he says it. It's not like it's a one-time deception, but it says with their tongues they keep deceiving. Which means it's a continuous action. A deceitful person is a person that has a a false tongue. They have a lying tongue. They have a a cheating tongue, a misleading tongue, a flattering or a smooth-talking tongue. You see, the natural man is not only guilty of deceiving. No, they're guilty of constantly deceiving. Constantly trying to hide or camouflage their true thoughts, feelings, or behavior. They're guilty of constantly trying to hide and to camouflage in order to protect themselves or in order for them to secure the things that they're after. It is a constant deception. And so the natural man, the mouth, the words are foul and corrupt. They're deceiving. Notice next is how it's poisonous. It says the poison of asps is under their lips. The asp is a cobra, it's a deadly snake. So here, Scripture testifies that the natural man has a tongue that is both piercing and poisonous. Just like the tongue of a deadly cobra. And so the idea here is to say that the natural man in their natural condition is wicked by nature. That they're filled with so much malice, deceit, that they seek to intentionally inflict harm upon other people. Think about a poisonous tongue. A poisonous tongue is a a tongue that talks and gossips about other people. A poisonous tongue is a tongue that likes to strike out against others. It's a way of describing the one that is seeking to to inflict harm at a moment's notice. A, A poisonous tongue inserts and spreads its venom. A poisonous tongue seeks to damage and destroy character or reputation. Poisonous tongue lies in wait, ready to strike, ready to attempt to harm or destroy the character or reputation of another person. The lips of a natural man are compared to a poison that can kill the metaphor is a strong one, emphasizing the incredible force and the destructive nature that our words can carry. Oh, that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That's a lie. It's a lie straight from hell. Our words can hurt. Our words can inflict great harm and destruction upon other people. Notice what else he says about the mouth of the natural man. Verse number 14, it says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The mouth was made to be an instrument of blessing. The mouth was made to be a a vehicle of words of kindness or of truth spoken in love. Proverbs chapter 8 verse number 21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Notice that uh, the cursing mouth or, or the bitter mouth is ultimately a sign of rebellion against God. Make no mistake, our words reveal our hearts. I can't say that any more clear. In fact, Scripture testifies to that reality. In Luke chapter 6, listen to the words of our Lord and Savior. He says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. And then he says, for his mouth speaks from, which, from that which fills his heart. Listen, you want to know the spiritual condition of another person, hang around them long enough and listen to the words they say. Listen to the language that they use. Listen to uh, how they phrase their conversations. I mean, how often do we think about how our speech pattern reveals how desperately people are in need of their Lord and Savior? Our words will make known the true condition of our hearts. Therefore, as God's children, we should... One, pay very close attention to what comes out of our mouths so they're an accurate reflection of what's in our heart. And number two, we should pay attention to the words spoken by other people because those words will reveal their heart as well. So cursing and bitterness may first strike us as being offensive, and it is, but there are also clues about a person's inward spiritual condition. And so, just as the words of the natural man are deceitful, the actions of a natural man are destructive. Notice in verse number 15. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. This is a reference from Isaiah chapter 59, verse number 7. There he says, Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. See, rebellion against God ultimately leads to violence against other people. And think about this. Since 1776, there has only been... 15 years in our nation's history that we have not been at war with somebody somewhere around the globe. Only 15 years. On top of that, consider this the leading cause of death in America is not COVID. The most dangerous place to be in America is not in a restaurant with maskless diners. The leading cause of a death in America is abortion. The most dangerous place to be in America is in the womb of a mother and that makes no sense. It should be the safest, the most protected place. But yet, from the hands of doctors who took an oath to preserve life, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, hundreds and thousands of unborn children have been slaughtered in their mother's womb. Happy Mother's Day. Think about it. We all share a common thing in this room. You're here. If you're listening, you're watching. We can be thankful because our mothers chose life. I, I get it. Like if you're here, you've made poor choices in the past. And if you're here, and you, you, you're part of your story is the fact that you murdered one of your children. That's what it is. May you know that God loves you. Christ's sacrifice on the cross covers that sin, too, if you'll just come to him. Repent. Receive the forgiveness that he has to offer. May you know that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And we as a church, we stand with you. We will help you. We will give you the guidance, the assistance that you need in order to overcome the painful decisions of your past. We stand ready not just to speak out against things like abortion, but to walk through you, with you, to help you find healing from those past choices. Look at verse number 16. There he says, Destruction and misery... Are in the paths. Destruction is a compound word uh, that can be described as breaking in pieces. It's completely shattering, it's causing total destruction. And so that's destruction. And then it says the companion is misery. Misery is a general term uh, that uh, really represents the resulting harm that emerges as the man's acts of destruction against other people. In other words, that shattering into pieces of the destruction acts of mankind, well, the companion to that is misery. Destructiveness inevitably leaves behind a trail of pain and Misery. In verse number 17, Paul says, And the path of peace they have not known. This is a reference from Isaiah chapter 59, verse number 8. There, I'm lost on my screen. If you can figure it out, that would be great. Uh, Isaiah chapter 59, verse number 8, it says, They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked, And whoever treads on them does not know peace. Thank you. It's not simply that they have not followed the path of peace. It goes deeper than that. It means they haven't really understood it in the first place. Peace was the ultimate hope and desire of the ancient Jew. So great was the desire for peace that instead of saying hello and goodbye in addressing one another, they would say to each other, shalom, peace. See, God's word gives us so much counsel as to what makes for peace. Because of the sin nature that we've all inherited as a result of the sin from Adam and Eve in the garden, See, in our natural state, we are enemies of God. And we will never experience peace apart from a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. The desire of the child of God is to know peace because we know that this world is not a peaceful place. Paul concludes in verse number 18, he says, There's no fear of God before their eyes. Here, Paul's citing Psalm chapter 36, verse number 1. There he says that transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. I want you to understand that fearing God has both positive and negative elements to it. The positive element, or in a positive way, every true believer has a reverential fear of God. That is to say that we have an awareness of the power of God, the, the, the glory of God, the holiness of God. See, reverential fear of God is the beginning of spiritual wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse number 10. There it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, the negative aspect For the fear of God has to do with dread or even terror. And there is an extent that even believers should have this type or this measure of fear within our own lives. It is not a bad thing to be fearful of the Lord in the sense of, oh, if God comes back or God is watching my sin... The awareness of God's knowledge of my sin should cause us to fear Him because we know that sin displeases Him and ultimately He'll judge sin. So sometimes we try to minimize the fear of God to just say, well, that just means to respect Him. That's only part of it. Fear is a positive motivator sometimes in our lives. As the school year is coming to a close, the fear of failing a subject will motivate a student to study harder, to do better on their final exams. You've been lazy in the workplace, and there's a rumor going around that they're going to start laying people off. Fears are of motivated to stop pursuing the lazy and start working in and earning your money. There is a healthy negative fear that we as children of God should have in our lives. Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 6 says, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. If we truly understood how offensive our sin is before God, and how we should fear offending the holiness and the righteousness of God, And that negative aspect to fear can serve a healthy purpose in our lives to keep us doing the things that we ought to be doing. Unbelievers, on the other hand, well, they should fear God in the most intense and terrifying manner. The Old Testament is filled with accounts of Lord bringing destruction and death And punishing all kinds of sin. I mean, we could go all over the scriptures to see this reality being played out. I've chosen one place for this morning. And that comes from Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. Consider the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 18, we're told in verses 20 and 21, and the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God sends two of his angels To earth, Sodom, and to Gomorrah. He sends two angels described as human men to verify whether the outcry that he had heard was accurate and true. And so without getting into all of the graphic details, I'm not going there, that's not the point. But you can read about it in Genesis 18 and 19, though without getting into all the graphic details, what happens next as he sent those two angels down only went to verify the exceeding wickedness that was there. And then in Genesis chapter 19, we're told then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law? And your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And then later in Ezekiel chapter 16, we're told in verses 49 and 50, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom: She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Those abominations are the things that were described in Genesis chapter 18. It says, therefore I removed them when I saw it. See, a biblical fear of God for the believer includes understanding just how much God hates our sin. And having a fear of the judgment of sin. Even within the life of the believer, God will judge sin. He will judge our actions, the things that we do. He'll judge our works. It will all be put to the test. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. He doesn't doesn't do it because he's sadistic. No, he's trying to do it to discipline us, to set aside that sin and live in righteousness before him. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. And Then verse number 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When you look at Romans chapter 3, I want you to understand that the, the ignorance that's mentioned in verse number 17 is caused by the pride in verse number 18. I mean, think back. Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 7 says, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction." All of these quotations that Paul is making a reference to, all of the Old Testament scriptures that he's referring to in this section point us to one major conclusion. Now, one conclusion is simply the whole world stands guilty and condemned before the holiness and the righteousness of God. There is no exception. There is no excuse, no exceptions, no excuse. That's why in verse number 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Even if you think about the last week's message, the law's ministry, the text says, so that every mouth may be closed so every mouth may be silenced so that every mouth may be stopped and then it says and the whole world would become accountable to god that means the entire human race would become answerable unto god you see the law illuminates god's standards And it illustrates our inability to live up to those standards. So there's no debate. There's no defense. The entire world is guilty before God. The Jews, they stand condemned by the law in which they would boast about. The Gentiles stood condemned based upon the testimony of creation and the evidence or, or the uh, testimony of their uh, their conscience. That's Romans chapter one and Romans chapter two. And I think it's in anticipation uh, of an argument that one might try to lobby against Paul at this point and say, "Well, what what if some that maybe there is somebody who could you know perfectly live up to the standards of God?" I think in anticipation to that. That's why he goes in verse number twenty. That because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And only the knowledge of sin. With this all-inclusive statement, Paul describes the, the hopeless state of humanity. The purpose of the law was never to bring about salvation. The purpose of the law was to bring about an awareness of our need for Salvation. That's why he said, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. There is no salvation that is attainable through the keeping of God's law. The natural man is completely incapable of keeping the law in its perfection. That's why if you'll take the time and if you'll read this book for what it is, Truly, set aside your preconceived ideas. If you'll just read the word of God for what it is, it will show you just how bad you are and how awesome he is. And as it does that, right, it should cause uh, within us, it should create this crisis inside of us. As we read it and we see how awful we are and how glorious he is, it should create this inner turmoil inside of us. And this crisis should lead us to a reality that the only hope that we have is found in and through Jesus Christ. So as we become aware of just how awful we are when we study his word, that should lead us to repentance and receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. And so what we see is that the natural man has neither the ability nor does he have the inclination within himself to obey God perfectly. It just won't happen. They won't even have a desire for obedience. Therefore, salvation must come by some other means. And the means by which salvation comes is what Paul is going to spend the rest of this letter addressing. Up to this point, the emphasis is on, hey, you're not any good. In fact, no one is good. No one will even pursue good without divine intervention in our lives. Everyone is universally wicked. And, and that's not something that you have to learn. It's something that's who we are in our natural state. It's not true. 99.9% of people are not good. They're not. If 99.9% of people are good, then why do we tell our kids not talk to strangers? And don't help the guy find his puppy and he's going to give you a sucker. No, we don't. Because people aren't good. They're wicked, awful. And that's our natural state. We don't have to be trained in it. What did kids start doing? <laughs> yeah, they lie. Oh, they lie all the time. All the time. And it's like, who sat you down and taught you how to lie so often and so well? It's in them. It's a natural stain. That rebellion, that, that uh, me-ism, that, that, that pride, that's the natural man. And, and what the text is trying to tell us is that we're all guilty and condemned before God. There's no excuse. We need help. We need salvation to come from an outside source. So, so to summarize all of chapter 1, verse 1, up to this point, chapter 3, verse 20, is that we're all bad. We're all messed up. No hope on our own. <laughs> but there's a conjunction that starts the next verse. But. But what? No, but Jesus, but Jesus comes, fulfills the law perfectly. Jesus lays himself down as a sacrifice to atone for our sin. Jesus offers the hope of salvation if we'll just trust and believe in him. So, hey, welcome to the reality. We're all bad. Ain't none of us good on our own pastor included, but Jesus, but Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? The only appropriate answer to that is to submit and to surrender your lives to Jesus Christ so that he will be your Lord and will be your Savior. Submit and surrender all that I am. I'll do whatever he asks me to do. I'll go wherever he sends me. My life now is to be spent Honoring and pleasing my Lord and Savior. That's it. When it comes down to it, when I walk off the stage today, when I go home today, the only thing that I have to consider is, did what I do please my Father? That's it. Your satisfaction, irrelevant to me. I love you. I want what's best to you, but I'm not going to be the ear tickler, the people pleaser. I refuse to do that. I don't want to establish my little kingdom here in this world as though I'm all puffed up and filled with this. No, it has nothing to do with me. Honestly, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with you and with me submitting and surrendering our lives to live for the glory of God and to make his glory known throughout this community. And then as it spreads from this community into this state, and Lord knows our nation needs Jesus. The revival begins among God's people. Oh, that it would begin with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love, for your patience, for your word. God, help us to do better about studying your word and help us to rightly apply it to our lives. In this moment, May we not get too distracted. I know some are hot and kind of anxious to get out of here. I know lunch plans and Mother's Day and all of these things are are before us. But the most important thing that we can do in this moment is whatever is necessary for us to be right with you. Father, in this room, there is sin and there is rebellion that is evidence. We need brokenness to occur. Father, some in this room are filled with anxiety, frustration, angst. There needs to be the sweet release and surrender unto you. Father, as we spend some time just reflecting upon your word Make your spirit guide and convict us where necessary so that we could all make decisions right now that would honor and please you. May you be glorified. We continue to pray. Staff and I, we're up here at the front. I'm telling you, we would love to be able to pray with you. you. Just come and let us know how we can pray with you. Maybe there are decisions to make. Maybe you'd like to join the church. Maybe you'd like to talk about baptism. Maybe you'd like to surrender your heart and life to Jesus right here, right now. Whatever it is that you'd like to do, we're here to help. We won't tarry very long. Let's pray and let's reflect and let's respond.